Chapter Seven of Contending Forces by Pauline E. Hopkins. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seven Friendship. What is so great as friendship? The only reward of virtue is virtue. The only way to have a friend is to be one. Emerson. After that evening, the two girls were much together. Sappho's beauty appealed strongly to Dora's artistic nature, but hidden beneath the classic outlines of the face, the graceful symmetry of the form, and the dainty coloring of the skin, Dora's shrewd common sense and womanly intuition discovered a character of sterling worth, bold, strong, and ennobling, while into Sappho's lonely, self-suppressed life the energetic little Yankee girl swept like a healthful, strengthening breeze. Care was forgotten. There was new joy in living. It was the southern girl's first experience of northern life. True, the seductive skies of her nativity had a potent hold upon her affections, but truth demanded her to recognize the superiority of the vigorous activity in the life all about her. The negro, while held in contempt by many, yet reflected the spirit of his surroundings in his upright carriage, his fearlessness in advancing his opinions, his self-reliance, his anxiety to obtain pain employment that would give to his family some few of the advantages enjoyed by the more favored classes of citizens, his love of liberty, which in its intensity recalled the memory of New England men who had counted all worldly gain as nothing if demanding the sacrifice of even one of the great principles of freedom. It was a new view of the possibilities and probabilities which the future might open to her people. Long she struggled with thoughts which represented to her but vaguely a life beyond anything of which she had ever dreamed. Sappho generally carried her work home in the morning, but ten o'clock would find her seated at her desk and ready to begin her task anew. Some days she was unoccupied, but this did not happen very frequently. These free days were the gala days of her existence, when, under Dora's guidance, she explored various points of interest, and learned from observation the great plan of life as practiced in an intelligent, liberty-loving community. Here, in the free air of New England's freest city, Sappho drank great draughts of freedom's subtle elixir. Dora was interested and amused in watching the changes on the mirror-like face of her friend, whenever her attention was arrested by a new phenomenon. It was strange to see this girl, resembling nothing so much as a lily in its beautiful purity, shrink from entering a place of public resort for fear of insult. It was difficult to convince her that she might enter a restaurant frequented by educated whites, and meet with nothing but the greatest courtesy, that she might take part in the glorious service at fashionable Trinity, and be received with punctilious politeness. To this woman, denied association with the vast sources of information, which are heirlooms to the lowliest inhabitant of Boston, the noble piles which represented the halls of learning, and the massive grandeur of the library free to all, seemed to invite her to a full participation in their intellectual joys. She had seen nothing like them. Statuary, paintings, sculptures, all appealed to her beauty-loving nature. The hidden springs of spirituality were satisfied and at rest, claiming kinship with the great minds of the past, 
whose never-dying works breathed perennial life in the atmosphere of the quiet halls. Now was the beginning of the storm season in New England, and on stormy days the two girls would sit before the fire in Sappho's room and talk of the many things dear to women, while they embroidered or stitched. They sat one cold, snowy day. The storm had started the afternoon before and had raged with unceasing fury all night, snow and rain which the increasing cold quickly turned into cutting sleet. Morning had brought relief from the high winds, and the temperature had moderated somewhat, but the snow still fell steadily, drifting into huge piles, which made the streets impassable. It was the first great storm Sappho had seen. It was impossible for her to leave home, so she begged Dora to pass the day with her and play company, like the children. Dora was nothing loath, and as soon as her morning duties were finished, she told her mother that she was going visiting and would not be at home until tea-time. By eleven o'clock they had locked the door of Sappho's room to keep out all intruders, had mended the fire until the little stove gave out a delicious warmth, and had drawn the window curtains close to keep out stray currents of air. Sappho's couch was drawn close beside the stove, while Dora's small person was most cosily bestowed in her favorite rocking-chair. It was a very convenient stove that Sappho had in her room. The ornamental top could be turned back on its movable hinge, and there was a flat stove-cover ready to hold any vessel and heat its contents to just the right temperature. Sappho was prouder of that stove than a daughter of fortune would have been of the most expensive silver chafing-dish. It was very near lunch-time, so the top was turned back, and the little copper tea-kettle was beginning to sing its welcome song. Dora had placed a small round table between the couch and the rocker. A service for two was set out in dainty china dishes, cream and sugar looking doubly tempting as it gleamed and glistened in the delicate ware. One plate was piled with thinly cut slices of bread and butter, another held slices of pink ham. Sappho lay back among her cushions, lazily stretching her little slippered feet toward the warm stove, where the fire burned so cheerily and glowed so invitingly as it shone through the Isinglass door. She folded her arms above her head, and turned an admiring gaze on the brown face of her friend, who swayed gently back and forth in her rocking-chair, her feet on a hassock, and a scarlet afghan wrapped about her knees. Dora was telling Sappho all about her engagement to John Langley and their plans for the future. "'I think you will be happy, Dora, if you love him. All things are possible if love is the foundation stone,' said Sappho, after a slight pause, as she nestled among her pillows. Dora was sitting bolt upright with the usual business-like look on her face. "'I like him well enough to marry him, but I don't believe there's enough sentiment in me to make love a great passion, such as we read of in books. "'Do you believe marriage is the beautiful state it is painted by writers?' "'Why, yes,' laughed Sappho. "'I wouldn't believe anything else for your sake, my little brownie.' "'No joking, Sappho, this is dead earnest. Don't you ever expect to marry, and don't you speculate about the pros and cons?' "'And the maybes and perhapses of the situation?' asked Dora, as she filled the cups with steaming cocoa and passed one to her friend. "'Dora, you little gourmand, what have you got in the refrigerator?' 
a box ingeniously nailed to the window-seat outside and filled with shelves, and having a substantial door, was the ice-box, or refrigerator, where Sappho kept materials handy for a quick lunch. Dora closed the window and returned quickly to her seat, placing a glass dish on the table as she did so. "'It's only part of a cream pie that Ma had left last night. I thought it would help out nicely with our lunch.' "'What? Again?' said Sappho significantly. "'That's the fourth time this week, and here it is but Friday. You'll be as fat as a seal, and then John P. won't want you at any price. Take warning, and depart from the error of your ways before it is too late.' Dora laughed guiltily and said, as she drew a box from her apron pocket, "'Well, here are John's chocolate bonbons that he brought last night. I suppose you won't want me to touch them for fear of getting fat.' Sappho shook her head in mock despair. "'And your teeth, your beautiful white teeth, where will they be shortly if you persist in eating a pound of bonbons every day? Think of your fate, Dora, and pause in your reckless career, forty inches about the waist and only scraggy snags to show me when you grin.' "'Thank heaven I'll never come to that while there's a dentist in the city of Boston.' I'll eat all the bonbons I want in spite of you, Sappho, and if you don't hurry I'll eat your slice of cream pie, too. And at this dire threat there ensued a scramble for the pie, mingled with peals of merry laughter, until, all rosy and sparkling, Sappho emerged from the fray with a dish containing her share of the dainty held high in the air. Presently lunch was over, and they resumed their old positions, preparing to take comfort. "'You haven't answered my question yet, Sappho.' "'To tell you the truth, I had forgotten your remark, Dora. What was it?' "'I suspect that is a bit of a fib to keep me from teasing you about getting married. What I want to know is, do you ever mean to marry, or are you going to pine in single blessedness on my hands, and be a bachelor-maid to the end?' "'Well,' replied Sappho, with a comical twist to her face, "'in the words of Gulliver,' I moat, and then again I moatn't. What troubles me is having a man bothering around. Now I tell John P. that I'm busy, or something like that, and I'm rid of him. But after you marry a man, he's on your hands for good and all. I'm wondering if my love could stand the test. That's queer talk for an engaged girl with a fine, handsome fellow to quarter. Why, Dora, I'm surprised at you, laughed Sappho gaily. I'm not ashamed of John P.'s appearance in company. He looks all right. But when one is terribly in love, one is supposed to want the dear object always near. But matches, love matches, my child, turn out so badly that a girl hesitates to get jined any man for betterer or worserer, as Dr. Peters says. Then I get tired of a man so soon. This with a doleful sigh. I dread to think of being tied to John for good and all. I know I'll be sick of him inside of a week. I do despair of ever being like other girls. Sappho laughed outright at the woebegone countenance before her. It's generally the other way. The men get tired of us first. A woman loves one man and is true to him through all eternity. That's just what makes me feel so unsexed, so to speak. I like John's looks. He's the style among all the girls in our set. I like to know that I can claim him before them all. 
It's fun to see him fluttering around him, kindly trying to put my nose out of joint. I must say that I feel real comfortable to spoil sport by walking off with him just when they think they've got things running as they wish. Yes, it's real comfortable to know that they're all jealous as can be. But for all that, I know I'll get tired of him. Let us hope not, if you have really made up your mind to marry him. Dora, sometimes I'm afraid that you mean what you say. I notice that you call him John P. What's the P for? Pollock. John Pollock Langley. His grandfather was his father's master, and Pollock was his name, sang Dora, as she rocked gently to and fro. Now there's Arthur Lewis, she continued. He's jolly fun. He isn't a fascinator or anything of that sort. He's just good. Who is he? asked Sappho, with languid interest. Properly speaking, he's Dr. Arthur Lewis. We were children together, although he is five years older than I. He's a fine scholar and a great business man. He has a large industrial school in Louisiana. He's gone up in the world, I tell you, since we made mud pies on the back doorsteps. But I never think of him except as old Arthur, who used to drag me to school on his sled. There was a gleam of fun in Sappho's eyes, as she said demurely, You seem to know all about him. Was he ever a lover of yours? Lover? No, indeed, Dora flushed vividly under her brown skin. The idea of Arthur as my lover is too absurd. Excuse me, dear, for my mistake, said Sappho mischievously. I didn't know but that he might be the mysterious link which would join love, marriage, and the necessary man in a harmonious whole. Well, said Dora after a slight pause, blushing furiously, I don't say he wouldn't like the role. You'll see him soon. He's coming to Boston on business in a few weeks. Oh, we've had rare times together. She sighed and smiled, lost for the moment in pleasant memories. Sappho smiled, too, in sympathy with her mood. Ah, yes, I think I understand. Poor John. John's all right. Don't shed any tears over him, said Dora testily. They sat a while in silence. listening to the sound of the whirling frozen flakes wind-driven against the window-panes. It was scarce three o'clock, but darkness was beginning to envelop the city, and it was already a pleasant twilight in the room. "'Tell me about Dr. Lewis and his work, Dora,' said Sappho presently. "'Do you know he interests me exceedingly?' "'I don't really understand Arthur's hobbies, but I believe that he is supposed to be doing a great work in the black belt.' His argument is, as I understand it, that industrial education and the exclusion of politics will cure all our race troubles. I doubt it, returned Sappho quickly with an impatient toss of the head. That reasoning might be practically illustrated with benefit to us for a few years in the South, but to my mind would not affect a permanent cure for race troubles if we are willing to admit that human nature is the same in us as in others. The time will come when our men will grow away from the trammels of narrow prejudice and desire the same treatment that is accorded to other men. Why, one can but see that any degree of education and development will not fail of such a result. I am willing to confess that the subject is a little deep for me, replied Dora. I'm not the least bit of a politician, and I generally accept whatever the men tell me is right. But I know that there is something very wrong in our lives, and nothing seems to remedy the evils under which the colored man labors. 
"'But you can see, can't you, that if our men are deprived of the franchise, we become aliens in the very land of our birth?' "'Arthur says that would be better for us. The great loss of life would cease, and we should be at peace with the whites.' "'Oh, how can he argue so falsely? I have lived beneath the system of oppression in the South. If we lose the franchise, at the same time we shall lose the respect of all other citizens.' temporizing will not benefit us rather it will leave us branded as cowards not worthy of a freeman's respect an alien people without a country and without a home dora gazed at her friend with admiration and wished that she had a kodak so that she might catch just the expression that lighted her eyes and glowed in a bright color upon her cheeks i predict some fun when you and arthur meet I'll just start you both out some night, and you'll be spitting at each other like two cats inside of five minutes. Arthur thinks that women should be seen and not heard where politics is under discussion. Insufferable prig! exclaimed Sappho with snapping eyes. Oh, no, he isn't. Arthur's all right. But you see, he is living in the South. His work is there, and he must keep in with the whites of the section where his work lies, or all he has accomplished will go for naught and perhaps his life might be forfeited, too. I see, the mess of pottage and the birthright. Bless you, not so bad as that. But money makes the mare go, returned Dora, with a wink at her friend, and a shrewd business look on her bright little Yankee face. I say to you, as Arthur says to me when I tell him what I think of his system, If you want honey, you must have money. I don't know anything about politics, as I said before, but my opinion won't cost you anything. When we can say that lots of our men are as rich as Jews, there'll be no question about the franchise, and my idea is that Arthur'll be one of the Jews. Oh! exclaimed Sappho disgustedly as she resumed her lounging position. Sappho, how did you come to take up stenography? I should have thought you would have preferred teaching. I had to live, my dear. I could not teach school because my education does not include a college course. I could not do housework because my constitution is naturally weak. It was noticeable in these confidential chats that Sappho never spoke of her early life. Dora had confided to her friend every event of importance that had occurred in her young life, and, in harmless gossip, had related the history of all the friends who visited the house intimately. But all this had begot no like unburdening to eager ears of the early history of her friend. Wonderful to relate, however, Dora did not resent this reserve, which she could see was studied. It spoke well for the sincerity of the love that had taken root in her heart for Sappho, that it subdued her inquisitiveness, and she gladly accepted her friendship without asking troublesome questions. How did you finally succeed in getting work? I've always heard that it was very difficult for colored girls to find employment in offices where your class of work is required. And so it is, my dear. I sometimes think that if I lose the work I am on, I shall not try for another position. I shall never forget the day I started out to find work. The first place that I visited was all right until the man found I was colored. Then he said that his wife wanted a nurse girl, and he had no doubt that she would be glad to hire me for I looked good-tempered. At the second place where I ventured to intrude, the proprietor said, "'Yes, we want a stenographer. 
but we've no work for your kind. However, that was preferable to the insulting familiarity which some men assumed. It was dreadful. I don't like to think about it. Father Andrew induced the man for whom I am working to employ me. I do not interfere with the other help, because I take my work home. Many of the other clerks have never seen me, and so the proprietor runs no risk of being bothered with complaints from them. He treats me very well, too. I have heard many girls tell much the same tale about other lines of business, said Dora. It makes me content to do the work of this house and not complain. You ought to thank God every day for such a refuge as you have in your home. I cannot understand people. Here in the North we are allowed every privilege. There seems to be no prejudice until we seek employment. Then every door is closed against us. Can you explain this? No, I cannot. To my way of thinking, the whole thing is a Chinese puzzle. Bless my soul! Just look at that clock! exclaimed Dora as she scrambled to her feet and began gathering up her scattered property. Five o'clock and tea to get. Sappho, you've been lazy enough for one day. Come downstairs and help me get tea. The boys will be here in no time, as hungry as bears. Piloted by Dora, Sappho became well acquainted with ancient landmarks of peculiar interest to the colored people. They visited the home for the aged women on M Street, and read and sang to the occupants. They visited St. Monica's Hospital, and carried clothes, flowers, and a little money saved from the cost of contemplated Easter finery. They scattered brightness along with charitable acts wherever a case of want was brought to their attention. Dora had accepted the position of organist for a prominent colored church in the city. There was a small salary attached to the place, which she was glad to receive. Sappho usually went with her to choir rehearsals, and, sitting in the shadows, well hidden from view, would think over the romantic history of the fine old edifice. The building, so the story ran, was the place of worship of a rich white Baptist congregation in the years preceding the emancipation. Negroes were allowed in the galleries only. Believing this color-bar to be a stigma on the house of God, a few of the members protested, but, finding their warnings unheeded, withdrew from the church, and finally found a Sabbath home in an old building long used as a theatre. These people prospered and grew rich and powerful. Colored people were always welcome in the congregation. The society in the old church, left to itself, had at last been glad to sell the building to its present occupants. Thus the despised people, who were not allowed a seat outside of the galleries, now owned and occupied the scene of their former humiliation. It was a solemn and wonderful dispensation of providence, and filled the girl's heart with strong emotion. During these evenings, when she waited for the close of the rehearsals, she became acquainted with many odd specimens of the race, men of brain and thought, but of unique expression, and filled with quaint humor. One of these characters was known as Dr. Abraham Peters. Dr. Peters was a well-read man, greatly interested in scientific research, but who had lacked the opportunity to obtain information in his youth. He had been a slave when a boy, a few years before the Civil War. Now he was the church janitor, and to eke out his scanty income kept a little boot-black stand just around the corner from the church, and, knowing something of medicine and nursing the sick, had advertised himself as a magnetic physician.
he displayed much skill and practice, and had acquired something of a local reputation. Dr. Peters and Sappho were good friends, and he brought out all his store of knowledge, proudly displaying it for her approval. "'You see, Miss Sappho, I knocked about the world some considerable,' he said one night, in his soft southern tones and quaint northernized dialect, as they sat in the cosy vestry waiting for the close of the rehearsal. "'Been poorer than any church mouse. But I've saved something, and I know the world. Perhaps you's interested enough in an old man to hear how I come to vertise myself as a magnifying doctor, and where I picked it up, eh?' "'Yes,' replied Sappho. "'I certainly am interested in your story.' "'Well, while they're caterwauling on that Easter anthem in ten flats, I reckon I'll have time to tell you all about it. First I knowed about magnetics was brought to my attention down home. Some people said I had the evil eye, and some said it was only a strong eye. But be that ever, it was a bad eye, and a terror to watermillion thieves when it was my watch on the chicken-houses. Magnifying and hoodooing is about the same thing down there, though senseless surrender most all old-time doings is done way. About the time I realized that I had this power, I had experienced religion, and I had been justified and concentrated, so that I got the blessing. Them days, too, I was a sottin' out to court my Susie, that's my wife, and all the young fellows round the county was a sprucin' up to her just like crows round Karen. Sunday was the day I had most on my mind, cause they'd ride up and hitch thou mules in a line all along the old man's fence. You see, he had right smart property and I spec that had a mighty drawn influence on some of them shiftless fellows who had enough sconch to start their own mule team up a hill. And thou they'd sot like so many buzzards waiting for a chance to slice Susie off to church under my nose. I had to work lively, I tell you. Susie was kind of skittish and restless, and it was first come first served with her, being she had her choice. Well, just at the time I got the blessing, I got the insurance that Susie was gwine to have me. All the fellers was satisfied but Possum to it. Possum and me was boys together, and we'd both run each other pretty hard, striving to come through first at the mourner's bench as well as to get the gal. Possum was beat when he found I had a full hand and had swept the pot. Oom um, hoo laughed Brother Jones, who was an interested listener to Dr. Peter's story. Oh, who, Brother Peters? Done guy yourself way. What you know about full hands and pots? Who give himself way, Brother Jones? Ever hear me say I's better than anyone else in this church? I'm a man, sir. I'm a man. I's done trespassed on the flesh pots of Egypt as much as any other man. Don't you oom um, who me, brothers? No, sir. Tetch us all a place, Brother Peters. Tetch us all a place. Laughed the brother as he walked away, his shoulders shaking like great mounds of jelly. It was some minutes before Dr. Peters could recover his equilibrium and go on with his tale. Possum Toot was so mad and disappointed that he finally challenged me to fight a jewel. I wasn't in no state of mind to be killed by any of his hoodoo tricks, Possum being an export at putting spells and such, like on anybody for from twenty-five cents up to five dollars. Neither did I want Susie to think I was afraid of Possum Toot. So there I was tween a hawk and a buzzard. Well, I accepted the challenge, and being the defendant in the matter, of course, I had the choice of weapons, and I choose rifles. 
We kept mighty secret about the arrangements, and met at moonrise on a field just back of the graveyard. The seconds measured off ten spaces after we'd shooken hands, and we each stepped to our places. Though it was a solemn occasion, I wasn't scared, but Possum was a-rollin' up the whites of his eyes, and you could hear his teeth chatter worse than dried corn shucks. Ike Watkins was head second, and he stood tween us, holdin' his red bandana in his hand, waitin' to say the word. "'Gentlemen, is you ready?' he says. "'Let her go, Ike,' says I. "'Take aim,' says he, and I pinted the rifle at Possum, and callin' up all the power in me, I threw it along the body of the gun, plumb tween Possum's eyes, just above the bridge of his nose. And that was a fair target, because the bridge of Possum's nose was a miracle for size. Possum gave a yell when he felt the strength of that eye, that would have split your year pan in two. And in two seconds he was in the worst alpaca fit you ever seen. The seconds acknowledged me the victor by a reckless invention of providence, they being aware that the adversary wasn't hit by a narrow bullet, the rifles being loaded with salt for fear of mischief. Possum owned up like a man that I was more powerful than him, because of the supernatural strength in my bad eye. Well, I kept on praying for more faith until I got the power in my hands, and by laying em on a sick person I could electrocute em instantly, and their bad feelings would disappear. People got the notion I could pray a person right out of the grave, and my fame spread abroad until I began charging for my services, explaining to my patients that the dead might be raised, but not for nothing, after which I see to fallen off in my popularity. Business being purty brief just then, I took Susie and moved up north, and went to cooking on a steamboat. I've done most everything in this world, honey, as I told you to get an honest living without stealing it. And I don't know, added the old man reflectively, as he stroked the gray stubby fringe on his chin. I don't know as I'm any too good if I got pushed real hard to help myself out. Humans is humans, and I've seen many a well-intentioned fellow settin' in the caboose when times was hard, and the mule mortgaged for a full value to three men at once to buy a meal and bread and hog and harmony and tobacco. But most in generally, I've got along without silin' my hands with other people's property. Well, honey, they paid me fifteen dollars a month and found for being head cook, and I paid ten dollars a month house rent out of that. Things was purty brief, purty brief. Times was more and more spurious, and it was work your wits, Abraham Peters, to get a livin'. I just didn't know which way to turn. One day I got a telegraph at the other end of the route that the baby was dead and no money to pay the undertaker, and the old woman sick in the bed from worrying. The Lord just seemed to pour his blessing down on us in a house full of chillin'. After Susie had twenty, I used to pray the Lord to stop blessin' us that way, cause he could see for himself that too many blessings was a gettin' to be a nuisance. I cooked the dinner myself that day, being the other cook was ashore, and you believe me, I sung, and I prayed, and I wrestled for help in that old steamboat kitchen down behind my biggest brass biler, where I was covered from prying eyes. All of a sudden, I felt the power, and the Lord spoke to me, and he said, Get up, Abraham Peters, and go out and hoodoo the first man you meet. Bless your child, I rise up in a hurry, and I started out, not knowing no more than nothing what was meant by that. 
First man I saw when I got on deck was the captain. I went up to him and I smiled. I must have had a purty picture with my face all grease and tears. I says, not thinking what words I was going to utter. Morning, Captain. How's your corporosity seem to sagatiate? Captain, he roared. You could have heard him holler up to Boston. He slapped me on the back and he says, Hey, Peters, that's the gall darndest thing I ever heard. With that, he hauled out a five-dollar bill and gave me, and walked off a-laughing fit to kill hisself. By night I had twenty dollars in my pocket, and everybody on the boat was calling me Corporosity Sagatiate. I've used that hoodoo ever since, and I ain't found nary white gentleman can't seem to get away from it without showing the color of his money. One of the owners of the boat took a great liking to me, and he says to me one day, says he, Abe, how'd you like to work ashore so you could be nearer your family and get better pay? Like it, says I. If you don't want to pulverize me, don't make me no such an offer. He laughed a bit, and then he says, I've got a big building up Washington Street, and I want a trusty man to keep it clean and look after the tenants. I'll give you ten dollars a week. I took off my cap, and I truly bowed down to that man, and I says, The Lord's been a-working on your heart, Mr. Pearson. Maybe he has, says he. Anyhow, you can pack up and go ashore next trip. Your place'll be waiting for you. First thing I knowed, I was bossin' a big job of janitorin'. Most of the people in the building was Christian science. After they'd got a little bit acquainted with me, they found out the power I had in my hands for layin' on. T'wa'n't long before I was pickin' up bright smart nursin' nights. Don't suppose you know much about this science business, do you? Sappho confessed her ignorance. Christian science is a faith cure. That is, it's using your brains and training them to know that there's nothing at all the matter with you if you only think there ain't. They argify that all sickness is a mistake cause it's imaginary. I don't believe that, though, cause I had the rheumatism while I was there, and the doctors started in to cure me by praying and working on my body through my spirit, and it warn't no more good than nothing at all. I've got as much faith as any living man, but rheumatism is one of them things that convince you agin your will. It will draw speech out of a deaf mute and make a blind man see when them pains is a grinding into your bones and giants worse than a saw cutting through knots in a cord wood stick. I'm free to say that curing my mind didn't have no effect on my pain, and I just kept on seeing blue blazes and swearing like mad. I allow that faith can move mountains faith as little as a mustard seed and that's mighty small if you believe you'll get what she wants and asks for that's faith that's good that's all right trouble is we don't believe it cordin to scripture we get mad when our prayers ain't answered not thinkin it's cause we ain't got horse sense enough to use discretion and puttin our faith in subjects that is approvin to the lord and will fit in with his own ideas about runnin the business of the universe and that's where faith cure is weak, cause it's come in injunction with God. Faith cure won't operate on any man, where it was preordinated that a particular man was to die with a particular complaint. No, we ain't up to come in injunction with the Lord's business. There's a number of grand diversions to Christian science. There's hypnism and pessimism and another of other isms, but they all bear the same way a sort of a plastic healing of sickness. 
the doctors kept after me about my gifts of healing and very kindly showed me wherein i could make an honest dollar and business being business i finally determined to adopt magnifying as a profession i've been in the business nigh upon ten years now and i've picked up as good a living as any colored gentleman who has worked a sight harder and had to take piles of unregenerate sass from his boss that night they walked home together after the rehearsal the four young people dora and john sappho and will some one of the choir boys walking ahead of them was singing in a sweet high tenor voice the refrain of an old love song couldst thou but know how much i love thee it suited will's mood and voiced his dream exquisitely. Along the heavens the northern lights streamed in radiance. Meteors bright and shooting stars added to the beauty of the night. The moon at its full shed the light of day about them. The wind whispered amidst the leafless branches of the huge old trees on the common and public garden as they passed them on their homeward way. Once Will took her hand in his— she let it stay a moment while she made an incoherent little speech about clouds and trees. Will said nothing. It was not time yet, he told himself. He would wait a little longer. End of chapter 7